So Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Well, thanks for that Bible reading, and thanks for the invitation, Jeff, to come and speak at Uni Church. It's great to be here. It's been a little while since I've come, and uh, it's nice to visit you guys. And I'm so pleased that you've been looking at a book of the Bible that's very dear to my heart, the book of Psalms. It's in the centre of the Bible. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean it's the most important part of the Bible, but I do want to point out the New Testament quotes the book of Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. And the book of the Psalm that we're looking at tonight is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other Psalm. So it's really, really important. But as you read it there, I wondered if you were saying to yourself, actually, I find it really, really hard to understand that Psalm. This is the first time I've ever actually spoken on this psalm, which, having thought about it, was pretty amazing since I'm now 43. You know, I just found that, I thought that would go over better. Anyway, um, <laughs> and I think one of the reasons is because it is weighty and it is important. Uh, lately, I've been getting into TED Talks. Do you know what they are? TED Talks, they've been around since the early mid 80s. Uh, set up by uh, a company, I think, in California to talk about technology, entertainment, design, T-E-D. And they have a live audience and they talk for 18 minutes. That's the recommended time. I don't binge on it, but I I do look at it. Uh, The other day I was looking at one on choosing a career. Uh, Not for me, for, for other people. The English presenter, who was probably around about the average age of the people in this audience, said that what people are looking for today, if they want to choose their career, they shouldn't think about the success at the end, they shouldn't think about the money, they should think about the cause. What's a cause for which they are willing to invest their lives? A cause that will make a difference in the world. And once you've worked out what that cause is, the next thing to do is to work out what kind of training am I good at that will make a great contribution to that cause. And that, said the presenter, will lead to a happier life. And then I looked at another TED talk. I didn't binge, just two, just two. By Billy Graham, the famous American evangelist, I think this year turns 99. He did this TED talk in 1998 when he was 80 years of age. It was in, again, California. It was a very large conference. There'd been people speaking on science and technology and how these issues were making a difference to the world in which we live, tackling the issues and the problems that we're facing. Dr Graham admired these many scientific and technological advances 
but he said he'd heard no breakthrough on what he considered were the three most pressing problems humanity faces today. Evil, suffering and death. The tyrannical trio. These are actually the mega enemies, aren't they? These are the enemies that actually rule our world. We must pray for tyrannical governments and politicians. We must pray for our own country. We must work on issues that our global existence faces. But underneath it all, the real issues we're dealing with are evil, suffering and death. And as so often the case, Billy Graham hits the nail on the head. And friends, these are the issues that I think Psalm 110 is telling us are being dealt with. You've been looking at the book of Psalms, I think, 10 weeks or so, this, this, most of this year, and you will have come across a group of people over and over again in the Psalms called the enemies. These enemies often, if you're looking at an individual psalm where David's just talking about his own situation, these enemies are usually people in his own country or perhaps even in his own family. Uh, they're people who, who've, who've slandered him, chased him down, surrounded him and now they seek to kill him. That's, that's one kind of enemy. Sometimes we find David in the Psalms, for instance, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, where the enemy David has is his own sin. And that's caused him great grief. And he pleads with God to rescue him, and he does. To forgive him, and he does. In a few Psalms, uh, maybe 10 or so, there, there is a group of people praying, a nation, and they might be praying because of an enemy that's attacked them, another nation. They appeal to God again. God hears their prayer and rescues them. But the enemies in Psalm 110 are a different kind of enemy. They're a mega enemy. Bigger than David's own personal enemies, bigger than the enemy that might attack the nation of Israel at one time or another, a mere nation. This is a global enemy. It's a group of nations. It's referred to as all the nations or all the rulers of the earth. This is an insurmountable enemy, seemingly so. And Psalm 110 tells us how God deals with these enemies. Psalm 110, it's made up of two parts, introduced by two proclamations. One proclamation in verse 1 and another in verse 4. Each part, each movement of this psalm is introduced and followed by consequences of this proclamation. Let's look at the first movement. That'll take us the most of our time tonight and then we'll look at the second movement, verses 4 to 7. We could spend some weeks actually on this psalm. It is so significant, but we only have the next two and a half hours, so we'll just leave it there. (laughs) Oh, you got that joke. Well done. Okay. Verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stool For your feet. David, did you notice, 
The first words of this psalm, I can't remember if they read out or not, of David, a psalm, those words are actually part of inspiration. They're in italics, in your Bibles, not put there just for fun, actually part of the Bible. We have no manuscript in words which the word of David, a psalm, are not present. Significant, we'll come back to it in a minute. David overhears the Lord the God of Israel, the God of creation, addressing his own Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. This Lord is invited up to sit at God's right hand. This invitation doesn't involve a sidewards movement. This is an elevation. This is a movement from below to above, from a lower place to a higher place, from earth to heaven. Sit at my right hand. Sit. To sit at God's right hand is to be in the position, the highest possible position, and the the closest possible position to God. This is amazing that someone, someone who's been on earth, would be invited up to sit at God's right hand, to be as close as possible to God, and to be equal with God in authority. This is amazing. You don't find another psalm like this in the Bible. It's nowhere, no saying like this anywhere. And here it is. And the New Testament latches onto it. First of all, Jesus latches onto it. It's quoted 16 times in the New Testament. Just that line, sit at my right hand. Jesus uses this to show that this king is superior to David. He says, you you look for David's king, David's son. It's not David's son you should be looking back. You're looking for David's lord. David has another king who sits next to God Almighty. David's not talking about himself or one of his dud descendants. He was the best. David was the best. All of the kings after David, downhill slide. Not talking about them. Book of Hebrews says, uses the same verse, says that this, this, this Lord is superior to angels. Why, why does he mention that? If you look it up in chapter 1 sometime, why, why does the writer mention that? Because... It means that this this ruler, this king, is not just the medium of some message. See, that's what angels were. Angels were the mediums by which God spoke, the mediums through which the law came to Moses and the Lord spoke to different people as angels. Not this king. This king, this Lord, is the one that all of the law and all of the prophets spoken through angels is actually talking about. He's not the medium of the message. He is the message. This one is superior to be at God's right hand, is superior to every power that can be named. Come with me over to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Uh, It's about four-fifths of the way through the New Testament and probably within the last hundred pages of the Bible. Philippians, 
Paul composes and quotes a hymn about this Christ and gets to verse 9, having told us how this, this one, this servant, Christ Jesus, came down, took on humanity in the form of a servant, humbled himself, obedient to death on a cross. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every name that can be named. This person is seated at the right hand of the Father and this person is named Jesus. Jesus' elevation to the right hand of the Father doesn't mark just one stage in many of God's purposes but is the grand finale, the climax to which all of the promises from the very beginning of the Bible have been directing their attention. Jesus is the supreme, the unassailable king, says the New Testament. He rules rulers. Secondly, the New Testament says that Jesus' elevation to the right hand of God is not just telling us about his superiority to all other powers, exclusive of none, but it's telling us that this is the result and climax of his death and resurrection. Come over with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be staying here for a little while, so it's worth the effort. Here's Peter, day of Pentecost, Jesus has risen from the dead, gone up to the heavenly Father on high. They've seen this take place. They're gathered in Jerusalem. They go through an amazing experience. They're speaking in foreign tongues. All the locals think, that they've been on the Terps a bit early in the morning for it, but you know, you never know. These new religious people, what they need to get on their high. Peter says, verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you. With the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Raising him up. And you'll go on and speak about how he's been raised to the right hand of God using Psalm 110. But let's stop for a minute here. Peter is saying that Jesus is elevated to God's right hand, raised from the dead, because he has conquered death. How is that? How has Jesus conquered this enemy, death? Remember what Billy Graham said, the three big enemies, evil, suffering, death. Answer, why could not death hold him down? Because he could not be corrupted by death. It could not eat him away. 
Why could not death eat Jesus away? Because he had not been corrupted by sin. He is a man attested to you by God. He's righteous, in other words. So says Peter, and so says the whole of the New Testament. If Jesus is seated at God's right hand, then it means this that he must have defeated death. And if he's defeated death, he must have defeated the power of death. And the power of death is sin and the devil. But why did he do it? He undertook all this not for himself, but for others. We'll come back to Acts. I told almost a fib there, but we're going to go and have a look at Hebrews for a minute, and then we're going to come back to Acts. I've flipped this talk around so many times now, I'm sitting on it. Here we are. Hebrews 2.14. Why did Jesus undertake all of this? Since the children of the flesh, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Was Jesus afraid of death? No, no. He did not come for himself. He was not raised for himself. He was raised for those who all their life were held in slavery by their fear of death. So the one who's been elevated to God's right hand, who shares God's power, is in closest possible relationship with God, is the one who was born into our full humanity and in that full humanity defeated death and in that full humanity was raised from the dead and that full humanity is now seated at God's right hand in that full humanity. So, we're working quickly here. We've now completed the first line of Psalm 110. Well done. Give yourselves a pat on the back. The first part of Psalm 110... Yes, you've got four fingers in different verses of the Bible now. Keep doing it. It's doing you well. It's a multi-talented skill. You will use it later in life. Sit at my right hand. Next line. That line talks about the significance of the position to which this ruler has ascended. The second part, the second line of verse 1, talks about the implications of it. What it is for. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God declares that he will utterly subdue all of this king's opponents, that the enemies will bow down before him as if they were a stool upon which his feet would be placed in the ancient world There are images upon which we find the king's feet are laid on the necks of their enemies to indicate their total subjugation. The New Testament takes this verse and says that is exactly 
what Jesus is doing now. He has his feet on the great enemies. He's not sitting back. Understand this, that where it talks about here, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, it's not God says, no, no, Jesus, don't do anything, I'll be back. Because the next line, it says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this king's doing the ruling, and yet God's bringing, yeah, it's working together. What the king does, God does. What God does, the king does. Again, there are two aspects to this consequence, what this declaration is for. And they come up in verses 2 and 3. So now we're moving on. You'll be glad to see that. Verse 2 tells us the means by which these enemies are being subdued. And verse 3 gives us the outcome of the enemies being subdued. Verse 2, the means by which the enemies are subdued. Verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter. Uh, we don't see those too often these days. I've put mine away on a top shelf. A scepter is a symbolic rod uh, given to a ruler when they ascend to their throne. It symbolises their authority. So what the Lord is doing here is promising to extend the authority of this king out from Mount Zion. That's the hill of Jerusalem upon which the temple is located in which God promised to dwell with his people Israel. But what is that scepter? What's the basis of that authority? What's the means by which that authority is going to be exercised? Well, the basis and the means by which it's exercised are actually the same thing. It's verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's the basis of the authority? What's the means by which this king is going to bring all of his enemies under his feet? It's the word of God. It's the word of God. That's the proclamation that elevates the king to his highest position and it's the proclamation that brings all of the enemies under his feet. Don't believe me? Come with me back to the book of Acts. I told you we're going to get back there. Chapter 2. David's been talking about the fact that Jesus could not be held in the grave because he was incorruptible. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you see and hear. For David did not ascend to the heavens and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here it is, ready? Verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and 
and Messiah, Lord and Christ. Do you, do you get it? Do you see what Peter's doing? He's repeating the word that the Messiah is given by God that David overhears to a new audience and saying that it's about Jesus Christ. He is preaching the gospel. That's the instrument by which the enemies of God and our enemies are subdued. The enemies of God, the great enemies, are not subdued by power. They're not subdued by force. They're not subdued by inventiveness. They're not subdued by technology, entertainment or design. They're subdued by the gospel. For that's what that message is. That's what that Psalm verse 1 is. That's, that's the gospel right there. The gospel is the means by which God judges, condemns, imprisons and ultimately destroys all of God's enemies. He just speaks and it's done. Oh yes, the enemies of Christ declare him a fake, a fraud, a failure and kill him. But God raises him and declares him master and king. It's on the basis of this message that Jesus died, rose, is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's on the basis of those things, what Christ has done, that forgiveness and eternal life are offered to others. Read on, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And 3,000 people were baptised. That's church growth. From 120 to 3,000. It's about what we've got now, a bit over 120. So 3,000. How did it happen? Because Jesus in his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand defeated the mega powers. And now through the gospel, through the message of Jesus, God is winning for himself a countless number of people. That's the means by which the enemies are being subdued, the word of God. But it also introduces us to the consequence, the outcome of what takes place. Verse 3, back to Psalm 110. This is an odd verse when you look at it first up, but this is what I think. It's not just my best guess. I think others would agree with me, including, I don't know, Don Carson or someone like that. Okay. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holiest splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's 
womb. Yeah, I said it was a bit different. What's it talking about? Well, that's the 3,000. That's the people here tonight. That's the people who've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and received forgiveness of sins across the thousand or two years that have gone since then. That's the multitude who are like dew in the morning, droplets of it, millions of them everywhere spread across the grass, fresh, revived. That's who it is. They're dressed in holy splendour. Uh, That's priest's uniform. These people are cleansed. They're not sullied anymore. And they're gathered at the side of Jesus. These people are born from above. They're not born of mere earthly parentage. They've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And they are now with Jesus and he is with them and they're dressed and ready for battle. What a great picture of what Jesus is doing now. But let me pause before we move to the second part because I know you're anxious. Are you on board with that? You're on board with that picture? You're on board with the idea that that we need to be transferred from a kingdom of darkness in the kingdom of light? Are you on board with the idea that that we're actually ensnared and enslaved by the power of sin, by the, 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 the power of death? We need spiritual birth. We need our sins forgiven. We need a Jesus who has died, was raised and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm, I'm asking, are you on board with that? Have you realised that you're on the wrong side of that king and you need to turn and to be on his right side? I want to assure you that If you cry out, as the people did on the day of Pentecost, what shall we do? And you follow what he says. You will be granted forgiveness. People think, oh, you know, becoming a Christian, that's just just slavery. That's just, that's actually having someone putting their foot on your neck. It's the exact opposite of that. Becoming a Christian is actually freedom from that. You'll be lifted up. You'll be with Christ in the heavenly places. You'll be seated with him in the heavenly places, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians. You'll be reclothed. You'll be given an eternal destiny with God, a people to belong to, and a purpose that's better than a life career advisor can give you on a TED talk, I'll tell you that. You'll be his soldier and his servant till your life's end. So that's the first movement of Psalm 110. We won't take as long on the second movement. The first movement is that God has appointed his king and will bring all his enemies under his feet. The second 
is that God has appointed his eternal priest to be with us in our trials and battle. The two halves of the psalm, back to Psalm 110, follow the same pattern. There's an announcement or a pronouncement followed by the consequences of that announcement. And I think that means that in Psalm 110, we're not dealing with two separate events. We're just looking at the same event from two different angles. One angle is the elevation to God's right hand. The other angle, he's declared as high priest. But still, the connection between verse 4 and verses 5, 6 and 7 isn't super clear. So let me see if I can help. Let's start with verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So like verse 1, this is a pronouncement that permanently establishes this king into a position of close relationship with God and a powerful position. In verse 1, the king wages war by his words. In this verse, he's called a priest in the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to go right down into that, so let me give you the, the short version. Melchizedek is mentioned most often in one book of the Bible, and that's the book of Hebrews. I'll have a little bit of a look at it. Apart from Psalm 110, he's only mentioned one other time, and that's Genesis chapter 14. Let me summarise that. In Genesis 14, Melchizedek is introduced as the king of Salem, Jerusalem, and also as a priest of God Most High. In the story, Abraham's gone off and rescued Lot and all of the possessions that were with Lot from the people of Sodom got rid of all of the enemies that were capturing them, freed them, brought them back, and was taking them back home. And as that's taking place, this Melchizedek person arrives. He's a priest king. And he blesses Abraham and says, praises God, who delivered all your enemies, or delivered your enemies into your hands. So there's the connection. Abraham was out there freeing people, and so that's now recognised through this priest, king. And then Melchizedek just disappears until Psalm 110. And Hebrews chapter 7 draws all this out. So let's have a quick look just at the first few verses there. Again, we don't have time to go through everything, but important to note what he says. Verse chapter 7, verse 1, this Melchizedek was king of Salem. He met Abraham. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's the extra thing that, that happens in the story, and that becomes important. We won't focus on it, though. Not the most important thing. First, the name of Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then king of Salem means king of peace. Without father, mother or genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he, that's Melchizedek, remains priest forever. No, actually it means the son of God remains priest forever. This Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That means he will be the one who is righteous in himself and will dispense righteousness to others. He's the king of peace. 
That is, he's the one who makes peace by destroying enemies and the one who offers peace to others. No wonder the writer of Hebrews latches onto this figure of the Old Testament who mentions again in Psalm 110. Continue to the end of chapter, 20, of chapter 7, verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests, that's the priests in Israel, the priests of Aaron, who die, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Note the last line. He is able to save completely or fully or eternally for all time. Why is that important? Back to Psalm 110. This is my best guess. Why does it go from that saying in verse 4, that declaration, to verses 5 and 6? The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He'll drink, drink from a brook along the way and so he will lift up his head. Remember, what's happening in the first part of the psalm is happening at the same time as what's happening in the second part of the psalm. What's happening in the first part of the psalm is that the word of God is going out, that people are responding, and a mighty army like dew upon an early morning is being spread out fresh and ready to go. What else is happening? God is crushing enemies. Heads are being crushed. Those who are lining up with King Jesus are lining up right in the middle of the battle. Remember verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. Friends, if you're a Christian, our brothers and sisters are being persecuted across the world. The name of Jesus is smeared. It's smeared maybe by your classmates. Mocked by our leaders. Why? Because our king is establishing his rule in the midst of enemies. It's a mess from one angle. These enemies of the king are not yet fully and finally subdued. There's no doubt that they will be subdued. That's certain. But we haven't reached the end yet. We haven't come to verse 1 until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's a gap. And until the until is reached... Until his kingdom is complete, until he hands over all things, that's the son hands over all things to the father, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Our salvation, our confidence of God's forgiveness are always going to be under attack. Our confidence before God, however, is secure. That's why we've got verse 4. 
You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Back to Hebrews. Verse 10 this time, chapter 10 this time. He keeps focusing on this priesthood, how this priesthood is eternal. But why is it eternal? How did it become eternal? Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. By one sacrifice, he has made forever those who are being made holy. And what was that sacrifice? That sacrifice was himself. Our king is not only a military leader proclaiming the gospel through us that all opposition must give up. He is a priest king who has full understanding of what it is that we are enduring and more than that, has taken all means necessary to remove all barriers between us and God, both the past, the present and the future. We do not have a priest, he says in chapter 4, who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we have been, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus is completely in control of his kingdom. It is reaching and will reach its appointed end. And in the midst of it, when we are under trial and difficulty, he appears to us and presents himself to us with all of his wounds. Conquered death, conquered sin, and conquered them through suffering. Friends, it may be that this battle about which this psalm is talking, it's not a pleasant psalm, it's quite frightening in a way, but it's talking about a real battle that if you're a Christian person, you are actually involved in. And it might be that this battle has actually come up to your doorstep just this week. Maybe you've had to go into hand-to-hand combat with sin or temptation or difficulty. Perhaps you're lost. Perhaps you received this week medical news, as friends of mine did only this week, medical news that was not welcome and not expected. Perhaps you have a Christian friend that you admire who said something or did something and and let you down really, really badly. Or you might have been that person. I've done that. Or maybe, and here I'm talking to those who are in the ministry of the word, who, who do this for 
not just their living, but as their, their, their calling and their purpose. Maybe you've endured a lot of opposition. Maybe you've been undermined by a ministry colleague. Maybe you're not seeing fruit for your labour. Maybe you're tired. And you want to stop. You want to give up. Brother, sister, no you don't. You're discouraged. That's what it is. But don't be. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We have a Lord in heaven who by his death and resurrection established God's rule and through him he is bringing all of the enemies under his feet. There is nothing which can overtake us that he does not have in control. We have a priest who offered himself as our sacrifice, who deeply understands our every single trial and temptation. Do not, do not doubt that. And he always lives to intercede for us. He makes our pathway to God the Father completely clear. There are no blockages between us and the Father because of Jesus. That's his job, so to speak. And in this psalm here, we have God's unbreakable word. His oath, no less, that this is true. God has staked his own life on these promises. They're not small promises. And he has set a day upon which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed. And he has given us assurance of that. By raising him from the dead. Let me pray. Heavenly Father we thank you that. Our Lord Jesus. Supremely accomplished our salvation. In such a way that it cannot. And will not be taken away from us. And we thank you that the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. Is supreme. And sufficient. That there is nothing more that needs to be done. And in spite of the test and the temptation and the trial and the maligning that we might receive. The thoughts that we have that we're not adequate or that we might not make it are just not true. For he himself is supreme and sufficient. And we thank you and we praise you for him. Amen.